You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up, the author of Putin's Wars, Mark Galeotti, joins us from Washington, D.C. to examine Moscow's latest attempts to demoralize the Ukrainian people. Also ahead, we'll have the latest from the Western Balkans as Serbia and Kosovo are told to end their long-running feud. Tone is important, you know, it's, uh, you can't call someone a war criminal one day and expect to talk to them the next day. We will also get the latest business news and find out why this British Prime Minister will feature in a new film, which is being shot in Westminster. A chance for change, more than that, a time for resurgence. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippie. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has said he is suspending, not ending, his country's participation in a deal that allows safe passage to vessels carrying Ukrainian grain exports. It follows Moscow's claims that Ukraine used a safety corridor in the Black Sea to attack its fleet. Meanwhile, large parts of the Ukrainian capital Kyiv are still without water, following Russian missile strikes on key facilities across the country. Let's unpack this further now with Mark Galiotti author of Putin's wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. He joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Good morning to you, Mark. Hello there. First of all, what does Russia's announcement mean in practice that the country is now suspending, not ending its participation in the grain exports deal? In practice, it actually means very little, really. In some ways, what's happened is Putin's bluff has been called. Having initially said that... uh, the uh, grain deal had to end. They've now had to reformulate that as just simply suspension of Russia's participation. It means that, look, in theory, in the future, Russia could still attack grain ships or more likely try to lay mines uh, along the kind of routes they would use. But for the moment, at least, it's just simply sitting back and sulking. Exactly. Despite this fallout, 12 ships carrying hundreds of thousands of tons of food left Ukrainian ports just yesterday alone. Do you think Russia would actually go as far as to try to stop these shipments or even to try to attack them? Look, I think a direct attack seems very unlikely. On the other hand, as I say, it's more that you might say what could happen is the Russians could carry out actions which are not directly aimed at the shipping, but which makes the environment in which they're operating much more more dangerous. So, for example, as I mentioned, mines, but also they could uh, announce that they're carrying out live fire training exercises and therefore seek to block parts of the Black Sea. But the point is, I, I think that at present, it's clear that the Russians have backed down. They appreciate not least that it would actually deeply annoy Turkey. And Turkey is, after all, one of the few countries they can still use as a potential broker and interlocutor with the West. So, you know, combined with the fact that clearly there will be a massive PR disaster if we saw a grain ship burning and people saying, look what this is doing to global grain prices and think of all the hungry people in sub-Saharan Africa. I think what is clear is actually that at the moment, at least, Russia feels it has no good options to intervene. Is that a relief for the, for the worldwide 
economy who have been worrying about grain exports and, and whether people are going to be starving in some parts of the world? It is a partial relief. Look, we have to appreciate that on the one hand, much of this is actually not being shipped to the poorest parts of the world, but to the actually rather unpoor parts of the world. On the other hand, that clearly does affect global grain prices. So, you know, it, it, it's a very complex uh, relationship. But what we're seeing is at present, as I said, most of this grain is going to high and middle income countries. Now, as I said, that can then be reshipped or other grain can then be shipped to poorer countries. But on the other hand, there's always a premium for, for the kind of reshipping. So, yes, it's a partial help. But to be honest, one of the key problems in the global grain market is, is one precisely of uncertainty. And the uncertainty still continues. Exactly. Well, Mark, you mentioned earlier that Putin's bluff has now been revealed. I'm wondering how much more can you tell us about Russia's strategy, considering, for example, the missile attacks on the critical energy infrastructure across Ukraine? What is Russia trying to do here? Essentially, what Russia is is banking on is that time is on its side. Now, Putin may well be wrong in that, but I think in some ways it's all he's got. So on the one hand, militarily, they brought in a certain number of these newly mobilized reservists to really try and hold the line. And quite frankly, they are being used as cannon fodder. But nonetheless, even cannon fodder can help actually slow down or prevent Ukrainian advances. So the, the hope is that they, they can basically throw in enough warm bodies, which sadly will then become cooling bodies in many cases, into the line just to sort of prevent any further Ukrainian advances in the next few weeks, frankly, before the rains make further uh, major op offensive operations difficult and basically hope that they can therefore hang out until spring. And meanwhile, we have the constant pressure on Ukraine, you know, at the moment, frankly, the Ukrainian population, not, I think, because they necessarily think that this, this is going to make the Ukrainians hold up their hands and, and surrender. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. But to create a much, much more complex dilemma for the West, because the West, after all, is not just simply providing military assistance to the Ukrainians. It's also providing massive amounts of financial assistance to keep its economy on life support. And there is a sense that the prospect of Ukrainians having a very, very cold, hard winter with limited supplies of electricity and also uh, interruptions to their water supplies all of this creates a sort of a new dilemma for the West in, in terms of how it supports it. Because Putin's only real hope is, frankly, is if he can outlast the West. If he can hold on until we end up, as he would think of it, getting bored or exhausted and no longer support Ukraine, then he has some kind of a chance of dragging a very limited but a kind of victory from this debacle. Mark, you're joining us from Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about what the mood is over there? What are decision makers there saying about the latest Russian tactics and what the Kremlin is up to? Well, I mean, of course, we have to remember that in a week's time, there are the midterm elections, which in some ways are for the politicians pretty much blocking out the sun. But amongst the officials who, you know, frankly, aren't anticipating any kind of massive change in US policy as a result, there is a sort of a clear consensus within Congress of, about supporting Ukraine. There is, as I said, a, a real concern about quite how to respond to this aspect of the, the challenge. Because in some ways, look, they are all geared up to provide just chunks of money. And they're all geared up to providing a range of military materiel. 
But this new challenge from the Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical national infrastructure poses a whole new question of dilemmas. Um, do they have, for example, large numbers of diesel generators that could help help pick up the shortfall, especially for things like hospitals and the like? And if so, are there enough supplies of diesel and how could that be got to Ukraine? I think this is the point. It, it's almost like they, they had got used to a certain way of fighting this indirect war with Russia over Ukraine. And now suddenly they're, they're, they're scurrying around, not quite sure what is the best way to respond. So I think it's a combination of continued resolution, real concern about how they're going to respond, and also, if we're perfectly honest, a touch of irritation against the Ukrainians. Um, we, we heard recently that uh, President Biden sort of raised his voice in a conversation with, with Zelensky. There is a sense that the Ukrainians keep asking, but they're not actually being very candid about the, the actual situation on the ground and their own plans. So it's a complex situation, but they are clearly continuing to be committed to supporting Ukraine however they can. Do you think the West has fully understood this situation now, considering warnings, for example, from military experts in the UK that Russia has, for example, according to one expert, declared a hybrid war on Britain already, but that Whitehall would still be in denial about how serious this situation is? What are your thoughts about all that? Well, I mean, look, I, th I think we, we need to have a sort of a note of caution when we talk about you know, Russia declaring hybrid war and so forth, not least because the whole concept of hybrid war is, if you think about it, uh, a problematic one. Hybrid implies military as well as non-military, and there is not the slightest real possibility of the Russians having the capacity, let alone the will, to to carry out military actions against the West. But nonetheless, look, it is clear that we, there are two wars going on. There is a shooting war going on in Ukraine, and then there is also a wider economic, political, social, even cultural war that is taking place between the West and Russia. And what we have time and time again seem to have not managed to get our heads round is that when we carry out actions that the Russians consider to be akin to war, such as economic sanctions, and then we suddenly get surprised when the Russians start messing with energy supplies, as if somehow we hadn't thought that wars go both ways. So I think what this is really illustrating to us is actually that we've not thought enough about the way that all kinds of non-military instruments can be weaponized. And yes, a lot of people talk about hybrid war and such like, but the bottom line is it's about the resilience of national political and economic systems. And as we've seen from recent developments, Britain, like, let's be honest, most Western countries, isn't very resilient. Mark Galliotti joining us from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. It's 12.11 here in London. Now here is Monocle 24's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. South Korean police are beginning to investigate a crush in the capital, Seoul, which left 155 people dead and many others injured. Officials say crowd control during Saturday's Halloween event was inadequate and more should have been done to prevent the crush. Brazil's outgoing leader Jair Bolsonaro is still refusing to concede defeat in the country's presidential election. He was beaten by the leftist Lula da Silva, but there are doubts over whether the far-right nationalist will accept the outcome of Sunday's contest. And the online furniture retailer Made.com has moved a step closer towards administration, following a decision to suspend the company's shares. Made.com stopped taking new orders last week when bosses warned that the brand was facing an uncertain future. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Emma. 
Rows between neighbours in the Western Balkans are par for the course, but the latest shenanigans involving Serbia and Kosovo seem particularly pernickety because it revolves around car number plates. At midnight, the deadline passed for ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo to surrender their Serbian-issued car number plates, but they don't want to do this. And Kosovo's biggest supporters, the EU and the US, have also asked it not to provoke unrest over such a trivial issue. The whole affair says much about the state of relations between Belgrade and Pristina and Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delorne, can tell us more. Guy, welcome to the programme. What exactly is happening now? Well, Marcus, police in Kosovo are handing out reprimands to drivers of cars with Serbian number plates, if those people are also resident in Kosovo. And in three weeks' time, they'll start doling out fines and, uh, after that, uh, confiscating the license plates. It's all part of what the authorities in Kosovo are calling a phased implementation of their crackdown on license plates, which is causing much consternation uh, among its partners and, of course, ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo, plus the government in Belgrade. Why so much kerfuffle? Well, what it comes down to is the the very basic point that Serbia doesn't recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence, uh, which it made in 2008. And ethnic Serbs in North Kosovo, unsurprisingly, don't recognise the authority of Kosovo's institutions in the capital, Pristina. So they've kept on using their Serbian-issued number plates on their vehicles. Serbia's government says there are agreements in place which clearly state that Serbs don't have to use Republic of Kosovo plates, but that Pristina has reneged on these agreements. Now, I spoke to Petar Petkovic, the head of the Serbian government's office for Kosovo. Pristina is the sole culprit here. Not only is this an act of violation against the relevant agreements concluded with the dialogue, but we now have Pristina announcing use of violence to implement these unreasonable decisions. And what does Kosovo got to say? Pretty much that it's a sovereign state, because of course it does recognise its unilateral declaration of independence from 2008, and saying that it has every right to expect that residents of Kosovo should be using Kosovo number plates. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Besnik Bislimi also told me that he's not impressed with international pressure to delay the implementation of this licence plate crackdown. It was also in the past this tendency on the side of EU to solve issues by postponing them. But we believe that simply postponing only makes the problem larger and only means that we transfer the problem to the next bureaucrat in the EU. And we don't think that this is the best medicine for dealing with long-term problems. Now, Guy, talking of international pressure, can you tell us, How have Kosovo's main supporters reacted to the government ploughing ahead regardless of their concerns? Well, their main supporters are the US and the EU, and they're not impressed, Marcus. So I was at the Belgrade Security Conference a few days ago, uh, where the US ambassador to Serbia, Chris Hill, was particularly entertaining. He's a veteran of Balkans negotiations from the 1990s. He was instrumental in the Dayton Peace Agreement and also the Rambwe Peace Conference. Uh, so both significant events in the 1990s. And he was on the same panel as Besnik Bislimi, which was very entertaining. And he told me it's ludicrous to be arguing about number plates when Europe's facing the risk of nuclear war.
We would have liked to see this whole uh, license plate thing shifted off so we can get on with much more important issues. I think if there's some effort to deal with the broader issues, issues like license plates will uh, fall into place. You'd obviously like them to be nicer to each other, though. Yeah, tone is important. You know, it's uh, you can't call someone a war criminal one day and expect to talk to them the next day. Very much so. Where do we go from here? How, how, how are these people going to address these issues? Well, right now, what we're seeing is Serbia's defense ministry saying that the army has been put on a higher state of readiness. That's pretty much as you would expect. Uh, I wouldn't be too alarmed about that, Marcus, because there are NATO peacekeepers in Kosovo, about 4,000 of them, um, a peacekeeping force called K4. And the Serbian troops, the Serbian government, really do not want to have to interface with K4, as you can imagine. Furthermore, they also see K4 as the guarantor of ethnic Serbs' safety in Kosovo. So there's there's no reason for, for these troops to get involved, but it's it's very symbolic at the moment that, that Serbia is saying, look, we're not happy. This, is, this will not stand as far as we're concerned. The US has reiterated its disappointment uh, with, with Kosovo going ahead. They'd been calling for a 10-month delay in the implementation of this uh, license place crackdown. But you know, Pristina is, is continuing, saying it's going to in three month three weeks time it's going to start handing out fines. Later on, it'll start confiscating number plates, and it wants everybody to have surrendered their Serbian issued number plates by April next year. So it's a it's a right old mess. I've got a feeling we'll be speaking to you about this a bit later as well. That was Monaco's Guy Deloni, our Balkans correspondent. Thank you very much. It is twelve seventeen here in London. You are with the briefing. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. You are back with a briefing on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. Let's get the latest business news now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, welcome to the programme. Once again, another bumper set of results from a global oil company. Tell us more about that. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, BP has posted its second highest ever quarterly profit. It's also announced a further $2.5 billion of share buybacks. Now, uh, the earnings included an exceptional performance from gas trading. Uh, it's really delivering a windfall for investors, but it's also stoking the ire of politicians who are dealing with the uh, economic and the political fallout from rocketing energy prices. Uh, profit came in at uh, just over $8 billion for the quarter. That was adjusted net income for BP, uh, well ahead of what uh, analysts were forecasting of around $6 billion. It is also more than double 
the level from a year ago. Now, uh, yesterday we heard from US President Biden. He says he'd like to impose a windfall tax on oil company profits. Probably worth pointing out, though, that this is not the first time the Democrats have tried to do this uh, and nothing has come to it so far, of course, with uh, uh, political uh, gridlock in the US. Uh, according to Bloomberg data, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell and Total Energy between them are handing almost $100 billion to shareholders annually in the form of buybacks and dividends. And, and they're investing just $80 billion in their core businesses. So you can see how it would be attractive for President Biden to get his hands on uh, some of this money. And of course, those midterm elections are coming up in just a few days time. Well, looking at then what's happening in the UK, does all this play into the UK government's fiscal plans? Are they eyeing up some of these profits, for example? Yeah, but it all seems like a vault fuss from the policies of Liz Truss less than two months ago. Rishi Sunak's government now says it is inevitable that all Britons, especially the richest, are going to have to pay more tax to restore stability to the public finances. We were told by Liz Truss and Quasi Quartz saying that cutting tax was the way forward. That would help to solve the country's growth problem and the public finances would take care of themselves. Now, the bond market put paid to all of that. So we've really come full circle now. Uh, we understand that the uh, chance met with the Prime Minister yesterday to discuss tax and spending plans. We're going to get that economic statement on November the 17th. Uh, they discussed the eye-watering gap, those are their words, in Britain's public finances and agreed that tough decisions are needed on tax rises and on spending cuts. I think uh, probably fair to say that we get a lot of this briefing uh, ahead of budgets. So that's perfectly uh, normal uh, for us to, to be prepared uh, for some of the tough choices the government has to make. And there is a, a hole in the government's finances and they are going to have to uh, make some pretty unpalatable decisions. I think we should uh, be aware, though, that they're going to probably going to make things out to be very bad ahead of the budget. So when we get that statement on the 17th of November, perhaps it will not turn out to be quite as bad as we've been briefed. But some of the tax choices uh, which we're told the government is looking at include continuing to freeze income tax thresholds. So that gradually drags more people into higher income tax bans uh, uh, with the rates of inflation we have at the moment. There's been talk of perhaps uh, some sort of uh, very uh, meagre pay settlement for public sector workers of perhaps 2%, when inflation is running at 10%. That would be a big real terms cut for public sector workers. Again, that is not going to go down well with millions of people who work uh, in the public sector. And all sorts of spending cuts have been mooted as well. So lots of uh, pretty uh, unpleasant choices the government could make. Uh, so I think it seems inevitable that they will look again at increasing uh, the windfall tax uh, on oil and gas companies. Remember, we do have one in the UK already, but it's not raising a huge amount of money. There is quite a big uh, loophole, you might call it, for uh, investment. So when companies invest uh, in the UK, they can offset some of that, uh, some of that windfall tax. Uh, so that is keeping down the amount they pay. So I think it will be uh, uh, impossible for the government not to want to get its hands on more of that money. Sounds about right. I'm wondering just finally, you and considering that there's about, what, two years left before the next general election in the UK, considering the, the massive scale of, of the challenge that Rishi Sunak is facing at the moment, are you optimistic that the government could get the economy back in order or at least in a better shape? Well, it's it's really a difficult economic backdrop uh, for the governing party. As you say, it is uh, just uh, over two years until they have to face uh, a general election. And I think the economic picture in 2023 is not going to look rosy. We already have inflation at 10%. That's only likely to come down uh, pretty slowly. The government is subsidising energy bills uh, with an enormous package amounting to more than £10 billion uh, a month. But energy bills are still much higher than they were a year ago. The cost of living 
voting is rising right across the board and that is politically very difficult. The other thing which is playing into the economic picture is rapidly rising interest rates. The Bank of England is meeting on Thursday. Rates are likely to go up from 2.25% probably to 3%. That's what we call a, a jumbo rate hike and that will not be the last of it. Uh, interest rates are going to continue rising into 2023 uh, as they are across uh, much of the world and that is likely to hit the housing market. We had some house price data uh, out today which suggests that house prices uh, are already moving down slowly. Many parts of the world are already seeing house prices dropping rapidly. Uh, I think there's a fair chance that is going to come to the UK and that is not uh, an attractive backdrop uh, for the government. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Thank you very much for this update. You are with Monocle24. It is 21.25 if you're listening in Seoul, 12.25 here in London. Finally, on today's programme, we're going to get a roundup of film news with our regular Monocle 24 contributor, Karen Krizanovich. Karen, good afternoon to you. Hi, Marcus. I'm sorry I'm not there with you. I normally am in the studio, but right now I'm broadcasting from Sky Elstree Studios. And actually, we should talk about why you are there and how that relates to your first film news story we have today. Oh, oh well, I don't Well, I can't really tell you why I'm here, but... Um, I can say that I am at the studio base of the mega production of Wicked, which is a two-feature back-to-back musical. It's just announced the casting of Jess Goldblum as the Wizard of Oz. Now, this is based on the 16-year-old smash theatrical musical, which is second only to The Lion King in popularity. So this is a huge production. This is a new studio, and it's all very, very exciting and good news for the British film industry. How much more can you tell us, uh, tell us about what to expect? Who are other cast members, for example? Well, um, from 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 some of the research that that we've been doing, um, it turns out that the that the fan that the director actually asked the fans, uh, "Who would you like us to cast?" And they picked out Cynthia Erivo, who's from Widows, and Harriet Tubman, Ariana Grande as well, who's a pop star, and um, also we've got Bridgerton's Jonathan Bailey, who's playing the handsome party guy Fierro. So if you know the musical, you'll know those characters very very well. Sounds very good. Shall we continue by talking about AI? It's been a theme in a number of films already, but it can actually be pretty useful in making films and writing scripts too. Oh, very much so. Now, people, when they hear AI, they get scared because they think, oh, computers going to take over everything. Well, they kind of have already anyway. But the point about AI... um, There was an animator that recently passed away and somebody developed an AI program that copied his style, imitated his style, and people were up in arms. But the great thing about AI, it can actually reproduce things in a very um, IP-friendly kind of way. And there's a Ukrainian company called uh, Respeecher, which took his voice and mixed it so it could be used for different shows. So he sounds the same. But we don't have to worry about uh, James Earl Jones getting older or not being able to do it. So AI is actually very useful. And also there are there are programs which will take a script and improve it and change it, improve it, quote unquote. Yes, I know. But, how can a, uh, how can can a computer it, improve a script? We're talking about a creative process anyway. Uh, yeah, well, very much so. But it's machine learning. So you give it so much data, and then it starts learning from that data. So it's it's we're a long way away from a computer completely making a film because there's too many moving parts. Um, it's not without the, the it's not um, away from the realm of possibility. But there's always has to be some human input at the moment. The thing is, is that AI can offer up um, ideas that you may have not thought about. What are your thoughts about AI? How excited are you about the future? Or do you think it's a good idea? 
I, I think it's a great idea. Anything that gives gives me as a writer um, more ideas has got to be a good thing. Okay, well, finally today, Karen, let's talk about a new drama about former British Prime Minister Harun, Harold Wilson that's become the first feature film, or at least one of the first feature films to be shot inside the House of Commons. Tell us more about that. Yes, okay, The Ghost of Harold Wilson is is a tense political thriller which is just being set up uh and it's it's a very it's very interesting it's very timely as well because it it happened in a time in the 70s when you know they had heat waves and everything was kind of going a bit crazy like it is today and so even though it's it's you know, 50 from 50 years ago I think the story is going to be very apt but what some of the producers were saying is that they were actually filming in the House of Commons chamber, which is very, very rare indeed. Now, they were saying that they were the first to do this. In fact, seven years ago, Suffragette, the movie, was in fact the first since the 50s. But what's very interesting about filming on location, I was speaking to a location um, manager this morning, and he said, it's actually a nightmare, even though it's cheaper to film in these in these. Um, genuine locations better than trying to build it. It's a real nightmare to try and film in there because number one, it's very expensive to get vehicles in and out, unit bases, etc. But also, um, if you damage something in there, <laughs> then you've got to <laughs> pay for it and fix it. But the great thing about filming on location, particularly in some places as rare as the House of Commons chamber, is that it gives you a real sense of place and of history. And I think that's the whole point of the ghost of Harold Wilson. Absolutely. I'm wondering, just finally, what does it take to actually to get to the House of Commons chamber <laughs> to actually film? How have these producers and film crews got there? Uh, money. <laughs> it takes a lot of money. <laughs> it's going to be not only connections, you can go and talk to that, but also I was speaking to some another producer this morning about this very subject, and he said that the, uh, the British Film Commission also steps in and negotiates these things. But you have to have money, you have to have time, you have to have connections, and you have to say the right thing because the, the massive security undertaking that allows a big crew in is also something to be taken into consideration. Fascinating stuff. That was the film critic Karen Grisanovich. Thank you for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. The programme was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That's at 1400 in Kiev, 1300 in Belgrade and 8am in Washington DC. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>